Welcome back to Libraryland Loves. I'm Michelle Arbuckle. And today I'm so excited to bring you a conversation that I've had with Tracy Thomas. Tracy is the creator and host of The Stacks, which is a podcast uh, where Tracy and her guest get to have fascinating conversations about books and the way those books have shaped their lives. Episodes of The Stacks range from Uh, Tracy talking about a book with a guest or author interviews. There's also a monthly book club conversation. But earlier this year, Tracy devoted a full week in February to a conversation about banned books. And over the course of those five episodes, had the most amazing conversations. She spoke with librarians, authors, students, teachers, performers, politicians, bookstore owners, and even other podcast hosts. I have listened honestly, to each episode at least three times over. And I made extensive notes on each one because they're truly illuminating conversations. And Tracy gets into all of the nuances around the issue of banning books. She talks about what it means when young people don't have access to certain books, about the difference between censorship and curation, about the legality of book banning. And she talks to authors about how it feels to have your work banned, They're really frank conversations um, about book banning, about which books are banned and why. And I was just really taken with the whole series. So I'm thrilled that Tracy agreed to come and talk with us to have this conversation. It's a really great talk. She's going to tell us all about what she learned over the course of that series and which of those conversations stuck with her. So I think you're going to like this one. And I'll be right back with Tracy Thomas. Welcome, Tracy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I am so excited to have you. And I'm curious to know, I mean, I know that when you first started the series, you mentioned it was in response to some of the stuff that was going on in the States around banning books. But what's your what's your interest in this? What what do books mean to you? And what do, where does this whole banned books interest come from? Oh my gosh, what do books mean to me? What, how much time do you have? What a crazy question to ask me, Michelle. Oh my gosh, I could never answer that. Um, in short, they are like everything, I guess. I don't know. They're my a hobby. They're my career. You know, I mean, they're how I learn. Like, you're a librarian, you know, they're everything. I mean, the reason that this was important to me talking about banned books is because of all the things I said and things I didn't say about how much I love books and how important they are. And I have dedicated my life to sort of not dedicate my life, but the last four years of my life to featuring, um, uplifting, uh, platforming authors and books. I mean, so the idea that there are people out there that are like fighting against what I do, I felt like we had to talk about it. Like I can't say that I'm an advocate for literacy or for education or for books or for publishing or for any of those things and then not take this direct brazen threat to those things seriously and put time into it. So it just felt like a thing that I had to do if I want to be the person that I want to think that I am. That's great. That's amazing. I mean, well done. It it was such a well curated series. And I mean, (laughs) I can't think of a single other perspective or person you could have included in those five days. You really ran the gamut. We didn't include any book banners. True. 
it was and it was a choice I went back and forth on it I talked to a lot of people about it even as I because the way that the series came together was really really fast um so you know I I appreciate that you feel like it felt very comprehensive because in the time creating it it felt very like is this gonna work like (laughs) episodes were coming out before interviews were finished so it was just like very it's not how I normally work right I, I normally am like much more prepared and you know I know a book is coming out for months I book the get like etc so it was definitely like yeah. I was like whoa feel like I'm doing the daily over here honestly it was really an amazing series I, I'm Thank just gonna you. keep saying that over the course of our, our talk today <laughs> go pause right now go listen to it <laughs> I'm very impressed that you listened to it multiple times because you were like I listened to it many times and I took notes and I'm like great I hope that I remember as detailed <laughs> as you do because that was in February and you know you know how it is when you podcast like regularly I podcast every week I don't remember everything oh, so you okay. might have to yeah. refresh my memory no I'm here for you I've got all the citations <laughs> ready to go <laughs> All right, so we are talking today about the top five moments, what the top five things that you learned or took away from that series that you did, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to start with number five. Okay, these are sort of ranked, but you know, I might change my idea of what the ranking is as I go, Go which is part of my personality. I love this on the fly. Yes, I'm a very on the fly kind of person, Um, though I hate it. I hate being on the fly, but it's how I work best, I feel. Anyways, okay, so I think the first thing that I learned, which was like, I sort of knew, but I learned a lot, was like what librarians are actually able to do and what the scope of their job is and like how big that is and how it's like you know uh with with Katrina Stokes who is my librarian guest we talked about how like librarians are sort of social workers and and also like when something is challenged like what the steps are that they have to follow and what that looks like and like sort of the bureaucracy of librarianhood and I know since this show is for librarians that probably feels like everyone listening is like, duh, idiot girl. (laughs) But for me, it was really interesting to learn about that. Yeah, she was great. I mean, yeah, I have a whole page of notes on what she said. So it was not a duh. (laughs) She was great. Okay. (laughs) All right. Shall we move on to number four? Okay. So when I talked to Hannah Oliver Depp, the bookstore owner at Loyalty Bookstores in Washington, D.C., she was talking about sort of curation versus censorship. And I think, um, you know, you're in Canada and I'm sure I know you guys have really hotly contested political sort of debates about, you know, about. I mean, politics, but and also here in America, I'm sure for people who live here are familiar, like our politics are just on a hundred thousand of like insanity right now and when all this book banning stuff was going on there was all this talk of like censorship censorship and like people and I think that um there's also this pushback about about like private businesses versus public government institutions like we're talking about book bannings in public schools and public libraries obviously if you're at a private school you can curate what you want if you run a private bookstore you can curate what you want and so having Hannah kind of explain the difference and how she approaches it at her black queer owned bookstore mm-hmm. in a place like Washington DC what that looks like for her versus you know if she were to be running a library in Washington DC a public library so that was a really interesting part for me yeah, I wrote down 
so many notes from from her part of the conversation and and even just you know the way that she framed censorship versus curation was interesting and it it does kind of apply to libraries in a way i mean the books that we give profile to and displays or on book mm-hmm. lists and thinking about mm-hmm. um you know just who we give airtime to and who we give platforms to is important um one of the things we've been talking about up here lately is school libraries and um, when something is taught in a classroom or or not taught in a classroom versus removed from a school library and kind of what the Mm -hmm. differences are there. So a book could be in the school library and not taught in the curriculum, but has a place in the library and a student can come across it and still read it. Right. And I think like to that point, I think librarians teachers who have libraries in their classroom, bookstore owners, myself, we all are curating a book experience, right? Mm-hmm. Like we all like in the school library, it's not just like there's hundreds of books just stacked up in no order, no not like it's not like oh, it's Black History Month, like but it doesn't matter, we're not going to put these books in the front, right? Or like oh, it's Pride Month, like there's curation being done constantly. Mm-hmm. And the question becomes Curation, I think, is fine. And I even think, and this is sort of, this is like where I sort of go back and forth. I even think that curation done in a sinister way is fine as long as the items are there. It's not ideal, but like if the book is there, the book is there. I think that there is a greater responsibility for librarians, bookstore owners, people like me or whatever, to not do that, to not curate in a sinister way. But I think like if the item is there and you're not saying it can never be found, if it's not in a lockbox, if it's not been thrown away, if it's not in boxes behind the library, like I think, okay, that's a conversation to be had about the students, about what is best for them or the or the bookstore buyers or whatever that looks like. But I think the censorship part of it coming as like a we do not have this book and will not and cannot have this book in this place, that is really the problem. But mm-hmm. the curate, I mean, there's too many books. You have to curate in some way. You have to say this book is great for our population and this book isn't at this moment. Um, and I think what Hannah talked about was, you know, as I mentioned, it's a queer-owned black bookstore. And so they don't carry um, certain books I, I think, for example, I'm pretty sure they don't carry Harry Potter, mm. any of the Harry Potter books, because of uh, J.K. Rowling's transphobic remarks and perspective, mm-hmm. frankly. Um, and so, and just being transphobic. Um, and so they will order the book for you. Mm-hmm. If you want a Harry Potter book, they will order it for you, but they don't carry it in the store. And so that is sort of what, what Hannah was talking about, about you know, curation versus censorship. You can have the book. You can buy it from us. We're happy to sell it to you, but we're not going to give it space when there are plenty of other authors who are writing fantastic sci-fi fantasy YA books. All right. That's great. So that was number four, the importance of curation versus censorship. What's number three? Um, so I think that was what was really interesting was just learning what the kids wanted to read and know about. Uh, when I spoke to the teacher, Kelsey, in uh, Louisiana, she talked about like the kids, she asked them and they were like, we want to read about relationships and like love. And I just thought that was really interesting because that's not what I would think mm-hmm. that a high school kid would necessarily like want to read about because I'm like, you know, unfortunately removed from my teenage years. Yeah. Um, and then 
Timia, when I talked to her, she was the student. She was talking about like wanting to know about like more about depression and like suicide and like these issues that were coming up. And again, like I don't think that that's what I would have thought of as a as a young person or what I would what I as an adult think I would have thought of as a young person. But I also don't think that those are the things that are being taught. Like those are not in the correct love and depression suicide I just don't remember learning that when I was a, was a kid and I know things have changed like I know John Green writes about love and mm-hmm. mortality and these types of things and like I know those books exist but it was just really interesting for me to sort of just think about what what do the kids want like they're such an important part of this and who's asking them what they want I was listening to your episode on um, NPR's It's Been a Minute. Mm. And there was, you had such a great conversation on that as well. I'll link to that in the show notes. But the idea about how kids can experience different emotions and different situations through books, which are like a safe, controlled environment. And so Mm -hmm. it's like a pushing of the boundaries in the safest way possible. Um, That was just such an interesting concept and idea and we think a lot about you know how kids they test relationships and they role play relationships and the drama of adult relationships when they're teenagers Mm -hmm. right but Mm -hmm. through books being able to to see that and visualize it without having to actually endanger themselves is such a huge thing excuse me it really really is and I think like as adults we know that for ourselves Mm -hmm. like that we read books you know to see other worlds and learn other things but for some reason I feel like we don't think about that for kids we think about books for kids as like a teaching like we're going to talk about alliteration so we're going to read you know we're like what are the themes in To Kill a Mockingbird all vegetables yeah and it's like they don't want to read that either and I just think like you know, and, and to, to me, it told me like that one of her favorite books is this book, Long Division, which I also loved. And I thought that was really fun. I was like, we both love the same book. Yeah. Like, what a treat. Because I think that I'm old and washed up and like, I don't have the same, you know, interests as a 16 year old, but I do. And that's made me feel great. <laughs> I, I really <laughs> like hearing, I think it was Tim Yeah, or maybe it was someone else talking about the subversive book clubs. Was that someone in your series? Oh, um, that was Azar Nafisi. Oh, yes, it was. Yeah. Um, But Mm -hmm. I love that idea and thinking about how kids use these lists of challenged books to base their reading on. Like they're going to seek out these titles that they're being told not to read. Of course. I mean, they're teenagers. It's not what you would do. Like, oh, I'm not supposed to read this. Let (laughs) me go find it. Um, But we also talked about on the show, which I think is like tied to that is Yeah, for the kids who are paying attention to the news, of which I don't know about you, but like I super wasn't that paying attention to the news at 15 and 16 and 18. Um, I still am not super paying attention. I wish I couldn't, yeah. Uh, yeah. But like you have to know what's being banned to know to seek it out, Mm -hmm. and you have to have the resources to seek it out. Like for a lot of kids, the kids who are able to do that, they come from a certain socioeconomic background. Perhaps their parents have certain political and, you know, beliefs um, and feelings about these things but there's a lot of kids for whom a banned book means they will never have access to it until they are an adult and decide you know and stumble upon it or or even seek it out but like think about like 13 year old kids you think they're really like tuning in to 
you know, face the nation to find out what books have been banned in their school district or, or logging on to CNN.com and like Googling, you know, yeah, like, yeah. so you'd have to find it and know. And even if you go on and like Google banned books, which I did a lot of obviously <laughs> to do this, the lists are really unclear and conclusive. Like the American Library Association has like the most banned and challenged books, but there isn't like a list somewhere that's like, these are the books banned in this school district. And these are the like, it's not like there's a document with all that information that a kid could go to, you know? So it's like, yes, there are some kids who are like doing these banned book clubs, which I think is fantastic. But I... I don't want people to think that like they've found a solution and all the kids still have access because mm-hmm. like you have to have money to get a banned book. And if your parent thinks that the bluest eye should be banned, they're not going to be like, here, Rebecca, go to the bookstore and buy the bluest eye with your allowance money that I'm giving you. They're going to be like, get that filth out of my house, you yeah. know? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Um, OK, shall we move on to number two? Yes. So this was... um. This I sort of pulled this one from sort of two different conversations, which was like sort of hearing about where things could go mm-hmm. um, with this, like kind of like this scary potential reality. Um, and in talking with uh, Azar Nafisi, who wrote the book uh, Reading Lolita in Tehran um, and has a new book out called Read Dangerously. And then also from um, Virginia State uh Virginia State Senator Ghazala Hashmi, um, Ghazala Hashmi, who they both talked about sort of the political, social ramifications of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Azar was from Iran and talked about, you know, books being banned there. And like, what does that really mean when the government is truly banning books and like, erasing people and making it dangerous to access information and and she talked a lot about like the banning of fiction specifically um as a tool to sort of teach people about other worlds like we were talking about before and then also with senator hashmi we talked about you know in virginia their new governor it has like a phone line you can call if like a teacher's teaching race mm-hmm. theory or whatever, critical race theory or teach, you know, you can report a bad teacher. Mm-hmm. And like just thinking about what that means and like imagining for myself, letting my brain sort of do the spin out thing where you really freak yourself out of like what that means and what that looks like. It's very scary stuff. I do think, and you came up. This came up in several episodes. The idea of, um, you know, paying attention to the authors that are being banned, the types of yes. books that are being banned, yes. the fact that it's most frequently queer authors, indigenous and black authors. That's those are the mm-hmm. perspectives that are being challenged and yeah. questioned. Yeah, and women. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think right now what's happening in America with the book banning, I think that's very exactly accurate for this exact moment. But I think like generally, broadly with book banning, I just, that that's more what I was talking about before. Right now, I know that they're banning these books because of homophobia, mm-hmm. anti-blackness, anti-indigenous sentiments, all of those things. Um, and it's very transparent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you're not fooling anybody. Um, yeah. I think that leads nicely into your number one. Yes. So 
we're recording that I don't know when this is going to air but for people who are listening in case it's like a few weeks from now we're recording this two days after um the shooting at the Uvalde school uh in Texas the school in Uvalde in Texas and you know my number one takeaway and, and this comes from the conversation the last day with KSA but also sort of always knowing this, but really thinking about it in that episode is like, this is not about protecting kids. Um, America has this like crazy unhinged relationship to quote unquote protecting things, whether it's freedom or unborn babies or, you know, the right to do whatever, you know, like all like this idea of like the word this great protector nation, which is just like so ahistorical. But anyways, um, and I think like in the conversation with KSA, we talked a lot about how the same people who are doing this to protect children from things that quote unquote make them uncomfortable or whatever are the same people who are throwing a fit when children are being asked to wear a mask to protect them from a deadly virus that they are not vaccinated against. They're the same people who are throwing a fit, you know, about, about women carrying unwanted pregnancies to term because they want to protect the life of this unborn child that will not have health care, has no formula currently in this country, uh, will not have access to mental health care, will not have access to food when they stop drinking formula. They're trying to get rid of, you know, free lunch and all of these things but it's like this idea that you're protecting the children and like the truth is this isn't about protecting children because there are things that America could do that would actually protect children like I don't know not sell AR-15s to 18 year old boys or girls or anybody you know and so for me like KSA sort of brought that up because he's from Mississippi and he was talking about how when he was a young person like kids were given guns and like don't tell me you're protecting children don't tell me this is about protecting children and how fragile they are when you're giving your kid a gun at eight and teaching them how to shoot it like what are you protecting and so for me like that I think I think for sure that is my number one takeaway is like this is not about protecting children this is about protecting the patriarchy this is about protection protecting white supremacy this is about protecting capitalism you know Mm -hmm. this is about protecting everything but but our children, but the children, but the future children. Um, and that is really bleak. Yeah. The thing I wanted to mention about the kids that I think was so interesting was the idea that protecting them or um, not giving them access to certain information or restricting them from certain things isn't actually an act of love encouraging to be ignorant of something or or not educating yourself so that you can have a conversation with your child that's not love and Mm -hmm. so there's there's some really interesting messages for parents and I hate to reduce this issue to just people with children because it is a bigger societal issue this is not just a kid thing Um, but the idea of what we need to do to have better conversations, to be less fearful of those conversations. I think mm-hmm. that is such a huge message for for parents, for everyone. Yeah. And I, I do want to say one thing just to clarify something I said before. I said a lot about like how it's being presented like to protect children from feeling uncomfortable or guilty is a word they use a lot right now. Um, and I just want to say that that is specifically aimed at white children. Yeah. 
they're not I, I just want to be really clear yeah. with my words that it, it's aimed at quote unquote protecting white children from learning about the atrocities of American history, which as anyone who knows even a little bit about this country knows are vast, wide reaching, very deep, very intrinsic to who it, what it means to be American, to who America is. Um, and, and to your point about loving kids, I think you're right. It's not just about people who are parents and it's not just about kids, but I do think that, that this attack on these particular books at this moment, it, this is going to stay with these kids, right? This conversation is now part of who they are. You think back to like when you were a kid, I think about the war on drugs probably more than kids now do because that's when I was in school, right? Like dare, we had dare programs like, and I knew it was bullshit then, but I still think about it. Like it still informs how I see the entire rest of the world. And so while right now it's about, it is about young people, like all of this, us adults, we were informed by this kind of stuff too. And it carries on into our lives. And like, you know, I was always terrified of being abducted as a child. Yes. Turns out that wasn't a real thing. I mean, people got abducted, but it wasn't a real thing to be scared about. It was so, it was so rare and so uncommon, but it was like all parents cared about when we, I was a kid, you know? And so I think that this stuff is going to have a longer lasting um, legacy with these children because it's the thing, you know, and I think this also pairs with the like, don't say gay bill and mm -hmm. the anti-trans legislation because this is all tied together. It's all, you know, it, it's all tied together to that. And then more broadly, it's all tied together to the 2020 protests that happened in America and around the world around Black Lives Matter. I think that Republicans, conservatives, white supremacists saw that. I think they freaked out and they were like, we got to shut all of this down um so for people who aren't as familiar with american politics and american identity politics and all of that this is a lot to do with with what happened in 2020 this isn't unrelated i would say and I, what what always stays with me and kind of breaks my heart is the idea that there are books about experiences that kids are having right now yes. you know queer identity or abuse, or, or puberty. Could be any, pu yes, could be literally anything. And they're seeing that it's banned or questioned or their existence should be erased from a shelf. And what mm -hmm. is the damage that that is doing? I mean, mm -hmm. that they are mm -hmm. seeing, they're maybe identifying with a book and then realizing that, oh, they want to get rid of me. They want to get rid of this. We shouldn't be talking about this. So that is terrifying. Right. I mean, I can only, sp I can speak for myself as a young person. Um, like the way that slavery was taught when I was in high school and elementary school and my whole life, I really thought that like black people were less than because I thought that we were like dumb for getting caught. And like we deserved that when I, you know, like that, that's how important these conversations are mm -hmm. and how they're framed and how kids have access to these things. Because I really thought that like we were not, as good as white people yeah. like that there was something wrong with us because this was this happened to us and we didn't fight back like because I, I wasn't taught about rebellions you know like I wasn't taught that I wasn't taught that black people built the White House and that we were skilled laborers you know like that's not I wasn't taught that black people built the entire country like mm -hmm. it's just so the way that these things are taught just as much as having access to them and saying like your identity exists because that means if you're a young you know, trans child 
and all the books are taken out of your school, you think you're the only one? I went to NYU for theater. Um, so I was blessed to be surrounded by so many incredible gay men, many of which came out when I was in college. And I was just out to dinner with a group of them for one of our friend's birthdays. And they were saying how they all were dealing with this coming out as black gay men. And they all thought they were alone. Hmm. And I was like, you guys thought you were alone? I was hearing everybody's stories, you know, like they would confide in me. And I was like, I can't believe you all didn't have, I just assumed everybody, you know, knew. And so just thinking about that for even younger people of like grappling with who you are and not even being able to like look in a book because also the children who are being erased in these places, they're in hostile territory. It's not like all their teachers are like, yeah, let's talk about your trans identity or let's talk about what it means to be black in America. They're in places where this is being this is happening. And like, yes, there may, might be, you know, resources or mentors or allies in those communities. It's harder to find if you're in a hostile environment. It's not like you can just walk, walk up to any teacher. I grew up in Oakland, California, a place that is, you know, notorious for being liberal, the Bay Area. And even still, it wasn't like these things were talked about constantly. So I can only imagine for people who grew up down the road from where I am in much more conservative areas in California, because I want people to know it's not just Mississippi and Texas mm -hmm. and Florida. It's California. It's New York. You can look online and see where things are being challenged. And you can see that it's like all of all over the country. Um, and I think that like as a person who is progressive and has, you know, in, in America has blue, vote, votes blue or whatever, um, I think people forget that it's happening, you know, a zip code away. It's happening in your zip code probably, yeah. or maybe not your zip code, but in your, where you vote. Like it's local. Anyways, that was a lot of things, but I just... It, this is a lot this whole thing is a lot of things which is you what know and it, so you hard. kind of touched on the idea of representation and I also just want to bring up you know joy stories of joy mm -hmm. I grew up a little redheaded white girl so all the little redheaded white girls in books you know there was Pippi Longstockings yeah. like, you know, they were all they were all getting into shit and solving yeah. mysteries and having fun and you know very very yeah. take charge little girls and I didn't really until and so I never had to think about it is what I'm trying to say I never had to think about joyful representation mm. the summer of 2018 I spent all summer reading um, only YA by black authors mm. and it literally was the first time at 41 years old that mm. I was reading stories about black joy where mm. you know when I was growing up, like one of my favorite movies was Boys in the Hood, you know, so of course. It's, it's, Iconic. it's culture, but <laughs> I grew up in Niagara. There was a few black families. So that was my black culture. You know, right, there right, were right. so many stories about black joy that I wasn't exposed to that I didn't know about that I'd never even considered. And mm -hmm. so I just think, you know, you touched on the importance of when it's Pride Month, when it's Black History Month, like we're not just showing the strife. Right. The, you know, the pain of it all, the historical perspectives uh, that are painful, but we're also showing joyful stories. I always push back a little bit on the joyful narrative conversation, and I'll tell you why. And, and not that not that you're wrong, but I just I caution people against it because I think that to be black in America, to be queer in America and all over the world and, you know, it comes with struggle and it comes with pain and difficulty. And I think sometimes what I've seen happen in the book community is like 
if a book has black characters and they have to go through something difficult, that it's like, oh, this book is not about black joy. But one of the things that I think a lot of black people talk about is how we can be in the shit and also like find a way to joke about it. And that's part of the black experience. Mm -hmm. And so for people who are like, I don't just want to read about slavery. Great. Me neither. But you might get a little sorrow with your black joy because it's not all going to be Pippi Longstocking because Mm -hmm. the little black girl who's doing what Pippi Longstocking is doing is probably going to be arrested by her school's you know resource officer or whatever they call the police at school you know so it's like I always just want to remind people that like if you're white your understanding of what joy looks like may not reflect what it what joy looks like and feels like and is you know obviously joy feels the same for you know everybody in a sense but like what what black joy is in literature written by a black author is going to be different than what it's allowed to be if it's written by like Emily Henry or whatever, you know. That's a great point. Just point that out. Yeah. Um, but I hear, I also hear your point and I agree. I think like I always say like I only read about one slavery book a year max. Like I just, I don't have, I don't, I don't need to. Mm-hmm. I am familiar with that history <laughs> at this point. A lot of people might need to. And like, I encourage you to do that. But for me, it's like, I can't, I can't possibly. Yep, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. It's been so wonderful to chat with you. And again, I just want to say for people who haven't listened to it, the series is amazing. Go and mm-hmm. listen to it. Um, I'm so glad that you did it. If you do it again, um, I hope you do it again. Although I hope you don't have to. I hope to I don't have to. It's <laughs> <laughs> a double-edged sword. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your work and thanks for this conversation today, Tracy. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much to Tracy Thomas for that wonderful conversation. Again, if you haven't listened to her series on Banned Books, please go check out The Stacks. It is a five-part series. It is so well worth your time. And you can find The Stacks any places where podcasts live. It is a fantastic weekly podcast and Tracy always helps me find new reads that I would never have found otherwise. In fact, right now, she's got me reading poetry, which has never happened before. Don't come at me. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about challenged books in Canada, I would encourage you to visit freedomtoread.ca, the official website behind Canada's Freedom to Read Week. And there you can find an updated list on challenged books in Canada's public libraries and also resources that you can use towards your own Freedom to Read programming. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Libraryland Loves. Take care, stay safe, and go read a challenged book, why don't you? Talk to you soon.